Season three of Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, licensed professional counselor supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Jennifer Baum, licensed professional counselor associate, supervised by Brittany Neese, licensed professional counselor supervisor, who will be discussing her practice and area of specialty, performance counseling. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So uh, what are your credentials and experience? My credentials are that I have um, a master's in counseling from St. Edwards University. Um, I passed my board exam. So I am a licensed professional counselor associate, meaning I'm provisionally licensed until I do a certain number of hours and then I'm fully licensed. What's the hour breakdown these days? It's 3,000 total with, I think it's 1,500 need to be direct. Right, right. Okay. And um, what sorts of, uh, like, uh, facilities or offices have you worked in so far? My first job after I was licensed, I was working in a neurotherapy clinic in Westlake. And I ended up not really enjoying that as much as I thought I would. Um, I missed just kind of the one-on-one counseling interaction with people. Mm -hmm. So um, I dropped that and changed supervisors. And so now I'm more in uh, just a a general private practice setting of associates um, in Austin. And then also I have some office space in Georgetown working at a place called Anchored. Um, That is kind of a wellness center that's got – estheticians, it's got a massage therapist, um, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, so some different clinicians for different needs. Very cool. Um, Do your rates vary based on uh, the location? No, um, they stay pretty pretty consistent. I'm I'm 110 for 50 minutes, and then um, more of an hour and a half, I think, is one, 150, 160. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and of course with COVID, you know, a lot of those sessions are virtual. Um, and so I feel like, you know, for my area of expertise, that's, that's been pretty in line with what people are able to afford financially and, and with mm -hmm. scheduling and um, all that. Okay. Do you have a sliding scale? Yes. Yes. I do like to provide some sliding scale spots um, because I'm, I'm always willing to take on that person who, um, you know, needs, needs some flexibility, um, needs me to work with them on, on rate. But if they're motivated, you know, they know they need help, they need to make some changes, they're willing to show up every week, then I'd absolutely take that person on. Awesome. Okay. And does that, is it more like a, um, uh, a different uh, fee structure or is it like what you would consider uh, a like true sliding scale based on poverty levels? I guess what, what's the term for it? I guess it's like a fee structure. Um, I don't have a set fee structure. Like I know some clinicians who are um, very strict, uh, structured and, and forms that you need to fill out and reporting what your income is, what your expenses are um, as the potential new client. Um, I just prefer to have a very honest conversation mm -hmm. with that person and say, you know, what are you hoping to get out of this? How can I help? How can we make this doable for you? Um, you know, and there's a, there's a mutual agreement. They're, they're going to be getting my time, my skills, but their end of, of the agreement is to, to put in the work. Um, so, you know, you kind of know what your um, lowest amount is that you're willing to, to go based on your own expenses. Um, right. But, you know, try to, I try to prioritize the potential new client. Yeah. I always have the conversation of like, look, you know, you're in this position now, but let's put it this way. When you make more, I make more, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, um, that, I mean, that, that would be, that, that's something I always set as an expectation in the beginning. Because um, I think that's totally, totally fair and makes sense um, and honors both the client and the therapist. Mm -hmm. um, as far as uh, appointments, do you have weekend or evening appointments available? I do. I do. Um, I try to keep some, some later after work, after school appointments during the week. Um, and those fill up real quick. And because yes, <laughs> um, I work with a lot of high school students, young adults, and so getting them in during the week is just not doable, at least for as often as I'd like to see them. So I, I do keep some Saturdays open. Cool. Okay. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? It is my first career, although I considered a couple different things. I always knew I wanted to do something uh, helping. And I wanted to be a large animal vet for a long time because I was an equestrian. And the older I got, the more squeamish I got. So that wasn't practical. And then I was always interested in psychology. I just didn't know kind of what discipline um, or how I kind of wanted to focus it. And there was a semester in college, I thought about being a physical therapist. And I interned in a physical therapy clinic for a semester and figured out real quick that I did not want to be touching people. <laughs> that was no go as well. And so then I came to counseling, being a therapist. 
Right, where we we are definitely not supposed to touch people. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little therapy joke there. Um, okay. So what what ultimately drew you to being a therapist? Um, it was really my experience as an athlete in high school. Um, because I was I was a, an equestrian, I was a show jumper. And um I got, you know, as I got more elite and was putting in more time for training and competing. Um, I struggled a lot with anxiety, with um, being able to perform the level I felt mm-hmm. I should. And there was a whole lot of frustration. And my goal was to go ride on, for an equestrian team on the East Coast at a school in Virginia. And um, I made it, I got there and just totally cratered. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, you think, well, it's probably more burned out in high school than what I realized. So mm-hmm. when it came to make the jump to the next level in college, I just, I didn't have it, couldn't do it. Um, and so that experience and all the frustrations that came with it, um, you know, I just didn't have the, edu- the psychoeducation to understand what was going on. I didn't have the language. I didn't understand relationship dynamics between coach and athlete, athlete teammates, teammates, coach, coach parents, all that, you know? And so I was just at a loss. And so that really was um, the most informative experience for where I felt there was a need and wanting to um, be a part in, in helping athletes like myself Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're not, I mean, in any profession, especially this profession, and I mean, anywhere where there's any sort of pressure and competition and, you know, just keeping up, I think, you know, burnout is a very real possibility and it can be hard to spot if you don't know what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. So you were an equestrian. Um, what else can you tell us about yourself? Um, like hobbies, interests, TV shows, music, pets? Um, so currently my two big hobbies are that uh, I'm a rower now. My, my new sport, growing here in Austin on uh, Lady Bird Lake. Uh, I row for Texas Rowing Center, um, primarily in the single and the double, which is rowing speak for some of the smaller boats you can race. Um, just the one man racing shell and then uh, two people in the double. And then um, also devote a lot of time to art. Um, I like watercolor and gouache, some oil painting. Um, and that's just kind of my, my own practice of making friends with failure, which I think everybody should do in some form or another. Uh, so it's very therapeutic for me. And awesome. uh, I'm not a big TV person, but I love the podcast 99% Invisible, Roman Mars. It's a favorite. And I have one pet at home, um, my ragdoll cat, Mia, who I joke is um, species confused because she <laughs> she's a dog and acts accordingly. <laughs> um, she goes for walks and she's at my side with, anything I'm doing now. How fun. That's cute. Um, 
So in your practice, when you're working with folks, what modalities do you find yourself drawing upon? Um, I pretty strongly draw upon CBT, a lot of cognitive work involved in shifting your mentality to a healthy performance setting. Um, Also systems, I'm a big fan of uh, Whitaker and uh, the family crucible, I thought was uh, really great reading grad school and systems, you know, and that, that book is about family systems, but that's applicable to teams and organizations, Mm -hmm. office settings, Mm -hmm. any closed environment where you've got people regularly interacting. Totally. Uh, Solutions focused as well, just because, um, especially with high school kids, I don't get to see them as much as I'd like. So I need to make the most of my time with them where I can and, and really kind of collaborate on, on problem solving with them and giving them some methods and tools that they can apply tomorrow, um, the next day that they're at practice or whatever it is. Um, and I do some narrative work too, journaling. And it's not necessarily like journal entries of processing what's going on, but sometimes it's, it's something very simple, like keeping an emotions log and color coding it, tracking that, um, practicing awareness of what they're feeling as they go about their week. It can be very helpful as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so tell us, what exactly is performance counseling and what sorts of things can it help with? I define, well, I define performance being um, any kind of like predetermined uh, act somebody does and you've got a goal or an outcome or an objective you're trying to reach, expectations. So, you know, we think of that primarily as being athletes, uh, a first responder, a high stress job but it could be anybody really um, who just kind of like your average Joe working at a marketing firm and trying to be a parent to three kids, be a good spouse, be a good partner, you know, all these roles that we uh, take on all the hats, the different hats we wear and being able to manage all of that and, and do it from the healthiest mindset possible. That makes sense. So in specifically with athletes, what are some common presenting issues you see? Uh, The biggest thing, of course, being the anxiety, stress, um, nerves, dealing with expectations, um, either that they put on themselves or somebody else is kind of laid out for them. Um, So certainly that and the very pervasive spiral that that can create. Um, So I know for myself, you know, when I was, when I was an equestrian and I was competing, I would get so nervous and have such a physiological stress response where I couldn't, I couldn't execute just basic tasks that, you know, at home I could do with my eyes closed and one hand behind my back because I had so much adrenaline that it just shut down my basic executive functions, being able to think on my feet, uh, being able to think linearly, you know, that, that experience where your mind just goes blank. And so, you know, 
you have have those nerves prior to competing or racing or playing a game and then you you go into competition it probably doesn't go as well as you would hope so then you have a negative experience and then the next time it comes comes time to compete that negative experience is what you're thinking about that's what's weighing on your mind and so it creates usually another bad experience maybe even worse and so it cycles you know it's it's a vicious cycle that we want to so it's, it's self-fulfilling prophecies it sounds like yeah. at some point it becomes that mm-hmm. exactly that so makes a lot that. of sense yeah and and injuries as well could be traumatic mm-hmm. brain injury um dealing with that as somebody's recovering but injury that maybe ended a career or being benched for six to eight months while you're healing dealing with the all the feelings and emotions around that um or maybe it was an injury that was really scary and traumatic and so that person now is struggling to compete at the level that they were because they're scared so that's that's a common thing as well what do you recommend for folks who have sustained, uh, you know, an athletic ending uh, injury? Um, you know, what, what do you recommend for those folks? Uh, in terms of? Like in terms of being unable. Well, just in terms of being unable to engage in the thing that you've done for so many years and enjoyed, you know? Yeah, it's... Um, you know, if in terms of, of a career-ending injury, it's that's really really tough because you know it come you're ending your career not on your terms, right. much earlier than you expected, and um, having to come to terms with that, especially if it's it's an athlete or a job that is such is so central to your identity, and that's been mm-hmm. taken away. Um, so there's a lot of processing involved in that, and kind of wading through the emotions and I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Stoics. So for me, I think a big part of any negative experience we have, um, any adversity is looking at that situation objectively and saying, okay, what can I take from this? Cause there's always something, you know, you can, you can learn from it. You can use it for something else that you move on to. You know, finding the the silver lining, I think, is really important. Mm-hmm. Some sort of um, like direction or meaning. Um, now, you know, I I used to play like all the sports when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, and I know competition is all about a state of mind. Yeah. How would you describe this state of mind? A healthy uh, performance mindset. One of the first things I go over with my, an athlete is I draw a graph for them with a, a bell curve. And so um, on, on the x-axis, you've got stress. And on the y, you've got performance. And so we want to be in the middle of that bell curve. That's the ideal, where you feel confident, you feel engaged, you feel that you can meet whatever the challenge is, all of those things. And on the left side, at the bottom of that bell curve is somebody who is not motivated, they're not engaged, um, they're not 
maybe don't, they're indifferent. Um, and that could be somebody maybe who's, who's burned out um, or somebody who just is no longer interested in what that sport or that job, whatever it is. Um, and then on the right side, you've got the red zone, which is totally overwhelmed, way too much of a stress response, too much adrenaline, incapacitated by just that um, all-encompassing anxiety. And so that's where a lot of my clients are by the time they come in to see me. So we want to get them in the middle. Um, and so that can, that's, that's where the cognitive work comes in. We talking about mindset, things that, um, make up a good, good, good mindset. And, and a lot of times it, it, it wades into talking about what's actually in our control because it's, it's a whole lot less than, than what people realize. Um, talking about the fact that winning is actually not in our control. And that's a difficult thing for people to grasp um, mm -hmm. and accept, especially when they're high achieving, especially when they're um, very capable. Um, mm -hmm. They've got goals. They want to meet them. Well, you know, crazy things happen with uh, an equipment failure or you're sick or a stopwatch error or COVID, you know, any number of things can just torpedo that outcome of wanting to win. So I boil it down into very three very simple things for them, which is you can control your attitude. You can control um, your, your daily participation, your daily habits, and you can control your choice, your willingness to engage with the present, whatever that is, good or bad. Um, mm -hmm. So that can be kind of like um, mind-blowing for for some people, but when you right. kind of get your arms around it, it's like, oh, this really refocuses things and makes things a lot more easier. Yeah, totally. I mean, because if you take the weight of, you know, having to control or feeling like you can control everything, it's just a, a lot that adds so much to that pressure. Um, so what are some common things that interfere with maintaining that state of mind? I know you mentioned that you know, often people will get to the point where they're just too overwhelmed, have too much adrenaline going on. Um, what, what are some things that might come before that happens? Uh, any kind of distraction that could, could come up. Um, I think, you know, as an athlete, you hear so much from coaches or from teammates, like, you know, you need to focus, you need to just, just do it. You know, the Nike slogan and it's not helpful to hear that because that person doesn't know what to focus on necessarily, something that's actually constructive um, for them. So having a distraction kind of pop up um, can be very, uh, can really derail what they're trying to do. Um, so you've got something like a, a breakup, for example. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Or it could just be something 10 minutes before you're due mm -hmm. on the field. Um, you know, it, like I said earlier, crazy things can happen. Yeah. So, um, you know, kind of like talking about earlier with mindset, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of being very structured, not to the point of rigidity, but being structured, be very intentional about what your routine is leading up to competing, what you eat for breakfast, what your first thought is when you wake up that morning, 
um, how, how you go about warming up, uh, all those things play, play a part in you feeling prepared and confident by the time it's go time. My uh, routine before basketball games when I played in high school was uh, I used to listen to Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil album mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah. before the game. Um, and for some reason, like it was always, it just always, you know, turned that like, I don't know, competition side of me on. And I, it felt like when I didn't get to listen to it, that I didn't perform as well. You know, it was just... <laughs> And you know, there's all sorts of like, uh, what's it called? Superstition when oh, it comes yeah. to competition. A sure. uh, whole lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. Which goes back to, you know, I, I think cognitive strategies can help with that as well. So what, what, are, what pointers do you have for maintaining a healthy state of mind for competition or for getting oneself into that headspace? I know you just mentioned a few. Are there any others you wanted to add? Um. I would say I'm a, I'm also a very big fan. You ask any of my clients, they tell you, I always prescribe the piggy bank of confidence and the piggy bank is a, a, a homework assignment I give of getting any kind of bowl or jar, something that's see-through, putting it somewhere that you're going to be seen every day on your desk, your nightstand, wherever. And picking some behaviors, some good habits that we want to reinforce, that we want to track, that contribute to you feeling confident come game day. So this could be uh, putting in a good practice, you know, not just showing up and half-heartedly participating, but, you know, really pushing yourself, um, engaging with that. Um, It could be eating well, eating enough staying hydrated, going, getting plenty of sleep, practicing good sleep hygiene, all of those things, um, those kinds of behaviors. And when you do that, you know, put a bead or a coin or a pasta noodle or a match, whatever it is in that jar. And this kind of, it's a multi-purpose thing because number one, it feels good. Maybe not on the first or second day, you don't really care. But once that progress starts to stack up and you can see it, you know, you're looking forward to putting your pasta noodles in in the bowl at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the purpose of this is that night before big competition or morning of you dump out your piggy bank and see all of the good progress that you've made, the time that you've put in, um, all these efforts that you've made to hopefully help you feel confident going into whatever it is you're going to do. So I'm a, I, I really think the strategies like that, that are visual really help kids, especially um, little tricks that help increase confidence and, and then um, subsequently decrease anxiety so that they they don't have that huge stress response. Yeah, no, I love that idea because it, it makes it, the progress like tangible. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, you know, when I've been working with clients for a while and they've made a lot of progress and I reflect that progress to them, they're like, oh yeah, like I guess I didn't even think about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think that having that visual is, is very helpful. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Cool idea. Um, so athletes, students, business professionals, first responders, and a variety of other high-stress occupations are prone to being under extreme amounts of pressure. What is your approach to working with folks who experience this sort of pressure? Uh, my initial strategy usually uh, with working with somebody in that situation is to alleviate stress where we can. You're never going to completely alleviate everything or eliminate it. But we can, we can bring it down somewhat with changes in lifestyle, with providing new tools and skills. Um, one of my favorite sayings is that, you know, especially for kids, they don't, they don't need to be lectured. They just need better tools um, to implement. So I think that's definitely the case. The more pressurized the situation is, having good tools in your, in, in your arsenal is very important. Um, and obviously just providing support through the space, providing space for them to just verbalize, articulate what's going on. That's such a huge part of stress too, is just getting it off your chest, um, getting to say what you need to, to a neutral person who isn't your coach, who isn't your teammate, who isn't your parent, who's paying for you to participate, um, things like that. Uh, also very, very important um, and like I mentioned earlier, cognitive work too, around, around mindset and, and your core beliefs and how those are affecting your behaviors as well. Um, we want to take a look at as well. Yeah. When you said tools in your arsenal, I had this, this funny thought that, um, you know, most people don't realize in order to fight zombies, you don't just need shotguns and, you know, all the weapons in the world, you need cognitive tools too really mm -hmm. because you have to be able to manage that stress and still be able to strategize right yeah. um so i don't know that was just a, a funny thought i don't know why the zombies but um <laughs> uh so what pointers do you have for our listeners who might be experiencing that sort of pressure where where should they start um usually a really great starting point is identifying expectations and, and distinguishing between what's intrinsic, what's extrinsic. What am I putting on myself? What, what's being put on me? Um, because, you know, in, in processing that, typically we find that there's a lot of it comes from ourselves and these, these ideals that we, we hold ourselves to that are not realistic. And, you know, we got to come to terms with that when it, when it's a case of, of, alleviating our, our misery of trying to attain perfection, trying to, to meet our goals. Um, I, I talk a lot about process versus outcome with not just athletes, but, but anybody and how important that is in our society, because we have this very pervasive line of thinking in athletics, especially that it's pedal to the metal. You're going to, eat, sleep, and breathe this sport, put in 150% um, training, more training, um, sacrificing so that you can, you can do that. You know, all these things that it's a lot, especially on a, on a high school kid. It's a huge time investment, emotional investment, financial investment, all for this outcome 
of winning, getting the scholarship, whatever it is. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have goals because that's definitely important, but we don't want to lose sight of the process. And the process is the things that we put our own personal stock in um, that apply to other aspects of life, not just sports, but how we show up as a teammate, but how do we show up as a sibling? How do we show up as a partner, as a student? Um, all those things are, are really, really important. And number one, when you have that shift in, in kind of perspective, uh, it makes the process much more sustainable so that you aren't as likely to be burned out. And um, kind of like I talked about earlier with participate, my own participation in art so that I make friends with failure, um, it makes failure much more doable because it's, it takes away the phobia of it because you have to fail to learn. That's part of the process. You don't, if you're not failing, if you're not coming up short, then you don't get better. And I think it's so silly and kind of irrational that in our society, it's, we're very phobic of failure and there's, there's so much focus on winning and it's like the probability of winning is not in our favor, right? You know, statistically, you're more likely to lose than you are to win. But we kind of ignore that and think like, no, if, if I just put in the time and effort, I'm going to win. We hope that, but the, oftentimes that's not the case and that's okay. You know, so I think um, kind of being able to instill some of those principles, especially with high school athletes and whatever they go on to next after high school is, is a very important foundation for them. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, one thing I see very often is a fear of failure of being paralyzing to folks uh, mm-hmm. to the extent that they don't try, which in turn, like, also implies failure, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because there's, there's no action toward that, that goal or desire. Um, and I think, you know, people get stuck in those sorts of cycles all the time. There are four failure or four fears that I have identified in my uh, in my professional career. That is a fear of failure, fear of change, fear of the unknown, and mm-hmm. a fear of rejection. Most people's issues I, I have found surround one of those, um, primarily the unknown. It's really interesting. Um, so you know, this is this this question just came to me. Um, you know, right now there's a lot going on here in Texas regarding uh, really uh, rights for transgender people, mm-hmm. and right now there is, you know, there's one for. Uh, K through 12 students in UIL sports um, requiring a gender check, which mm-hmm. means that they will be able to participate on the team that is uh, in line with the gender that is on the birth certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting topic for sure. Um, 
but you know, I look at it as a woman, uh, where, uh, the, I don't know. I, it's, it's an interesting debate for sure, because the thought of having to, to bar somebody from a sport or from participation, you know, like nobody wants that because everybody should be able to participate and be able to benefit from all the great things that you get from being in a sport. Um, and, and so I think if, if we can have this conversation about how we can remain inclusive about sports and, and keep, keep it open from, from people who want to invest their time and their money and their character development in that, you know, that's really important. Um, but, but yeah, when you've got people on, on a certain side who are saying, you know, we have to have these measures in place. Uh, you know, if you are um, of a certain, I don't know if categories the right word, but um, let's say you're, you're a transgender woman, um, you know, to, to bar them from a sport that they want to participate in just because of um, that identity of, of being transgender. You know, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily right. I think, I think taking that kind of a, a, a hard line against it isn't, is it how we can we can move this societal topic forward? And so I hope that there's there's some resolution that we can include everybody. Well, I think that you know a lot of this is based on the I mean misunderstanding. So say there's a trans woman mm-hmm. um, who wants to participate in women's sports, as she should. Um, Most people's argument that I've seen is like, oh, well, she has testosterone. Uh, When in reality, she has the same hormones you have. And because of the hormone therapy she's on, she is not producing testosterone. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she gains weight, she metabolizes, you know, it's all the same as any woman, mm-hmm. um, you know, so I, I don't see a lot of merit in that argument. Um, you know, same thing, like, you know, say I had transitioned when I was in high school and uh, I was on HRT testosterone. I don't think I would have been allowed to play on the girls team like that just you know, in that, mm-hmm. I do have an advantage, um, you know, because I can tell you since I started testosterone, I have gained muscle like crazy and I haven't mm-hmm. worked out a day in the past four years, unfortunately, other than walks. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't lift weights. I don't do any of that. And I can do pull-ups now several in a row, whereas before I could not do one at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I just think there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, and also, I think people forget that you can change your gender on your birth certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think that that is um, a, I, I just think the whole thing is flawed. 
doesn't make a lot of sense. And I suspect, you know, what, what do they want to do now? Like after that, do they want to do genital checks? I mean, you know, what, what's next is, is my concern. Um, You know, especially after this uh, recent bill was um, passed yesterday in, was it the house? Can't remember. I think it's going to the governor now. Um, Banning trans kids from being able to access gender affirming care period Mm -hmm. uh, in the state of Texas, which is absolutely ridiculous. And we're going to see a definite increase in the suicide rates here over the next few years, as long as that's in place, I can assure you. Um, I digress. (laughs) That's just something that's been on my mind and I am very upset about. Um, But yeah, thanks for, for answering that. So, you know, thinking about burnout, you know, you had mentioned before that um, you, you, didn't, you didn't feel like you had the education to see that coming until it was already there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what should people look out for? Um, for starters, you know, any, any change in temperament in behavior certainly is indicative of something going on. Um, but you know, the loss of motivation, depression, irritability, um, more anxiety, um, being withdrawn, any, anything along those lines is, you know, grounds for, hey, we need to have a conversation and, and talk about what's going on and, and how, how you want to move forward. And I think it's so unfortunate um, because of how competitive things are for, for kids these days in sports, particularly also academically. Um, but you know, there, these parents that have them involved with like, let's say for example, uh, baseball and, and pitching specifically, um, you know, boys that they'll be pitching year round from, I don't know, maybe the age of 13, 14, and that's all they do. And by the time they get to high school, you know, they've, they've been involved with that for a long time with the hopes of getting a scholarship, uh, going to college, and then hopefully getting drafted um, for, for the league. And it happens so quickly where you're very invested in this sport, this activity, and there isn't always a whole lot of room for that child to stop and be like, okay, wait, is this actually what I want to do? Do I want to advance? Do I want to invest more time? And that usually leads to burnout, to resentment against that sport and that they used to love, used to have so much joy in participating in, and it's been kind of gets robbed from them. Um, so for sure, the, those kind of emotional, emotional indicators, behavioral signs are usually a good starting point. So if somebody were to wake up, say tomorrow, and realizes, man, I'm burned out, what would you recommend they do? I would recommend that they consider that their their window, their opportunity to stop and evaluate what they want to do next. And, you know, jump off the train if they want to. Um, the great thing about uh, going to therapy for that, it, a lot of times that what I find is 
especially for kids who maybe are on the verge of burnout. They're, they're not sure at what level they want to continue participating in a sport. And so sometimes, you know, it's just being able to voice that in our sessions that, that takes some of the pressure off. It's kind of the analogy of, um, you know, like people are much more likely to stay in, in a room if the door is open. It's when they jiggle the handle and it's locked that they, they start freaking out. Right. Um, and it's the same thing with kind of feeling locked into this, this high level of competition where sometimes just knowing that they have the option to quit when they want to is enough to keep them going and, and help them kind of fine tune how far they want to take this. Do you find that once somebody has reached like a pretty fair amount of burnout that they often will quit that sport or switch professions or, you know, I'm just curious, like, you know, how many, like what percentage of people just end up moving on from that thing? Mm -hmm. I think it depends how long they've kind of been shouldering that burden by themselves without the support for it. It goes on for a long time and that resentment really builds of having to do this thing that you don't want to do anymore, then that person's probably more likely to hang up their, their spurs and be done with it, move on to the next thing. Um, and maybe not ever go back, try, try something new, move on to something else. And, you know, I think that's just fine. The fact that they're brave enough to do that. Um, and, and, be a beginner in, in something totally different and, and learn from the ground up is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not always the case. You know, if, if people get support and know that they've, they've always got options that, um, you know, hopefully they don't have to, to do this, um, that's enough to kind of keep them going. And, and ideally, like for working with me, I want somebody to kind of like working in that, that process versus outcome um, cognitive work. I want them to, I want joy to be brought back in with, with what they're doing in, mm-hmm. in their process. That needs to be the foundation of what they're doing. Um, and if that's not possible, then okay. You know, that's usually a pretty good indicator that they need to go find, find that joy, that fulfillment somewhere else. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you have mentioned, and I bring it up again, the idea of too much adrenaline going on. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little more about the physiology of stress and how this interacts with our cognitions and affects our actions? Yeah, so um, it, it really boils down to the fight, flight, freeze response. Your, your brain has perceived a threat. And that, you know, it's not actually a threat. It's just competition. Um, But your brain doesn't know that. And so it triggers this uh, hormonal response where you've got things like adrenaline all of a sudden pumping through your body to help you um, do whatever it is you need to do. I was always that kid in school because I was very shy and kind of withdrawn where anytime a teacher would just call on me suddenly, my body would just like pump. I don't even know 
amount, but so much adrenaline, like enough to sprint the length of a football field. But (laughs) I'm just sitting there in my chair, like trying to think of what I need to respond with. Um, And so if you're somebody who is, who is that way, has that kind of reaction, the, the term for it is cortical inhibition. And so that is where you have such a stress response that your brain, that, that frontal lobe part of your brain that's processing, that needs to make decisions, needs to think linearly, shuts down. And that's where you have the brain freeze, drawing a blank, not being able to think on your feet, uh, all those terrifying things that I'm sure everybody's experienced in some form or another. Um, and then in, in the context of sports, it's like, holy cow, I can't throw the ball like I've done a million times. I can't run fast enough. I can't uh, keep my eye on the ball and track it where I need to, things like that. And that's incredibly anxiety provoking, which is kind of that that vicious cycle that we talked about. Right. Makes sense. Any pointers on managing stress from a physiological level or psychological level? Um, I I think starting with the basics in uh, being intentional about diet, um, sleep, uh, managing how much you're training, and being aware of of physical burnout, because that's a thing too. Mm-hmm. where you, you know, you hit that plateau where you're not getting faster, you're not getting stronger. That's because your body is overtrained. It needs a break. Um, so those breaks, the mental breaks are very, very important in implementing so that when it is go time, when you are on, you can do that to the best of your ability. Um, so a lot of times when a client comes in, um, I like to get a very comprehensive view of what a typical week looks like for them and where stress is coming from. Is it at home? Is it at school? Is it a boss? You know, um, and how much of it is, is adding up so that then we can work on minimizing things where we can, greasing the wheels, um, making things easier where we can make them easier. Um, and then kind of, like I mentioned earlier, giving, giving them new tools novel solutions to um, combating the stress that we can't eliminate that's still there. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what advice or pointers would you give to family, friends, coaches of, um, you know, athletes or any other profession, you know, that is high pressure, uh, you know, or competitive in nature? Um, how, how can they support their loved one best? Um, communication is so important um, between everybody involved, making sure that everybody's on, on the same page, especially when it's a, a family um, surround that, that surrounds the person who has a lot of stress, whether it's in a job or in athletics. Um, anytime there's a whole lot of time being invested for that one person, you know, making sure that they feel supported and everybody's on board with that is really, really important. Um, and providing that, that time and space for that person to be able to process what's going on, the highs and lows 
that go along with trying to accomplish something at a very high level, or um, maybe it's a job where safety is a big thing and there's very, very little room for error. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of do or die. Those, those situations are, you know, a whole lot of, a lot of support and kind of, like I said earlier, um, greasing the wheels where we can, making things fluid, making things click along where we can so that, um, you know, just transitions throughout your, your week, throughout your day. We want to make those as fluid as possible um, so that it eliminates unnecessary stress. Got it. Okay. What would you say are some common misconceptions about performance counseling? I love this question. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, so it's interesting. Um, In other countries, Russia, Australia, Canada, sports psychology is, has been a thing for a long time. It's, it's a standard operating procedure in sports in anything that's high risk to have a sports psychologist who helps that person with those things. In America, not so much. It's kind of still a new thing. Um, And it's still, I think, kind of perceived as frivolous um, and unnecessary, kind of this luxury um, if you have access to it. And I feel like that, that really stems from just American attitude of like, bite the bullet, pull yourself up. Suck it up, yeah. Suck it up, get through it. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, there, there is another way of, of high accomplishment that isn't so painful. Um, but I was just recently watching, I rewatched uh, Runaway Bride with Julia Roberts. It's a favorite oldie for me. <laughs> That's a and good one. I don't know if you've seen it, but... Yeah. Um, her current fiance is a football high school football coach and he's big into sports psychology and um, he's trying to like coach Maggie through this fourth attempt at getting married. And he says things like, keep your eye on the ball and you know, you need to breathing so important, you know, you need to breathe through this. And of course he's oblivious to the fact that she is feeling uncertain about marrying him. And so I feel like that's kind of a, a common portrayal around sports psychology is that you've got, it's really just somebody who's like very self-centered, very focused on high achievement. They're oblivious to others around them and it's frivolous. And mm-hmm. I really, I hate that because that's, that's not, that's not accurate and it doesn't, help people who need that kind of help feel like they can reach out. Right. Right. Totally see that. Totally understand that. Okay. Well, switching back to you as a therapist, um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to give you examples? When I was in graduate school, I did a year of my full year of internship placement at Austin State Hospital, which is total opposite end of the work I do now. But I intend to do that uh-huh. <laughs> um, for that experience because it's very unique um, in the people that you work with in that setting. Um, and 
the unvarnished truth of it is that there's not a lot of hope there and there's not a lot of progress. Um, these are people who come from very low SES communities. They don't have a lot of education. They don't have a lot of financial resources. And they're, they're very severe cases of schizophrenia, schizophrenia with bipolar features, um, all kinds of um, delusions, uh, hallucinations. And then on top of it, a lot of times they're just not, whatever cocktail of medication they're on just really isn't that efficacious for them. And- Or, or a lot of times people aren't medication adherent, which often mm -hmm. leads them to hospitalizations. Right, right. So it's very frustrating. Um, and there, there just isn't a whole lot of progress. And I always got, I got to a point where I was, I kind of had this, this cynicism because every day I would drive in and out of campus and there was this sign there that said something like Austin State Hospital established in 1886 or whatever it was. And it said partnering to aid in rehabilitation of the community or something like that. Keyword being rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that what rehabilitation, who is getting rehabilitated? I mean, the, the people that discharge, they're not discharging and going home to pick up school, pick up a new job. They discharge to another facility in the state psychiatric system. They're being managed, you know? And or even sometimes they may discharge to places like the Salvation Army, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, it was very frustrating because I knew there's people in the front office there who look at the numbers, look at the spreadsheets of what, what percentage of a unit is discharging, how long are they staying? Um, and even if that number is acceptable or higher than expected, it's like, well, they're discharging and they're probably going to be back in a year for sometimes, I mean, a lot of those, those patients on, on specialty, they're there for three or four years of time mm -hmm. on the unit. So, um, so that was, that was a very eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a LPC supervisor and I think it is so necessary for every therapist, uh, when they're an associate working on their hours to get experience in the community, you mm -hmm. know, in, in patient hospital, hospitals, in PHPs, in IOPs, residential treatment programs. I mean, I think that the experience that one gains working in those sorts of, um, you know, facilities is invaluable and prepares you for private practice later down the line, if that's what you desire to do, in mm. that you feel ready and able to handle, you know, whatever comes your way. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you work in places like that, you don't get, when you work at Austin State Hospital, you don't have a choice as to who your client is. Right. I mean, you have to, you know, work with somebody nonetheless, and you, you learn what you learn. Um, I just think it's so, so important. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, thanks for telling us about that experience. Um, so 
what can a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? I love initial sessions with clients. It's my, favorite. <laughs> uh, I don't know why, but I just, you know, you take the little bit of information they give you in consultation on the phone or an email and you have this first meeting and uh, I call that getting the lay of the land, you know, and sometimes I, I like to book extra time for initial initial sessions so that there is plenty of time to start unpacking what's going on. Um, but I just, I guess I just really enjoy having a very honest conversation, laying out what my skill set is and how that would be applicable to that person and how it would benefit them, what they can get out of our therapeutic relationship, however long it lasts. Um, I always tell clients that, you know, if they get to a point where they're like, well, Jennifer, I'm good. I, I'm doing really well. And they don't need to see me every week or every other week. Like, that's, that's my goal for you. You know, I, I would love to hear that. And of course, doors always open. There's kind of do check-ins if needed or if something comes up. Um, so I just love having that conversation with new clients, honestly. Um, and answering questions kind of, especially if it's their first time um, mm -hmm. working with a mental health clinician. Um, there can be some nerves around that. So making sure it's a good experience for them, it's a good first session, is one of my favorite parts of being a counselor. Cool. What about on an ongoing basis? Ongoing basis. So with, with, with athletes, you know, a lot of times I'll have somebody who is wanting to work with me relative to an off season prepping for um their senior year competition um a season a a particular race that they're training for they want extra support for the training leading up to that um maybe it's college prep working with them non-academics um so i try to be kind of going back to the solutions focused uh modality try to be fairly structured in what I want them to get out of that session. Ideally meeting every week. Usually that's not functional with schedules. Um, maybe it's every other week. Maybe it's just a couple times a month. Whatever it is, I want to meet that person where they are and make the best use of time. And I know for some therapists, they, they don't want to go into a, a session with an agenda. But usually, you know, if, if there's psychoeducation I want to provide, um, providing information about the physiology of stress, something I want them to, to have and start implementing right away, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're going to go over that um, as yeah. soon as possible. Makes so sense. That's kind of my ongoing process. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a, like it helps with what I would, like crisis aversion kind of almost, you know, if somebody's already in that highly stressed state, I think that's important. Um, how would you say your clients describe or experience you? That's a great question. I, it's a hard one. It is hard. I know, you know, the times that I get emails from parents saying, I've noticed such a change in my kid. Their attitude is so different. They're doing really well. Um, you know, those are emails that you save 
and uh, they make your whole week. And you, you know, you think, well, I must, I must be doing something right. You know, this, this is going well. Um, but you know, it's, I always, when I first started out, I was always kind of worried being younger. Uh, anytime I worked with some, a client who was older than me and, you know, maybe them feeling like I wasn't experienced enough or, um, couldn't empathize with what was going on with them. So I felt, I felt sensitive to that. And in those situations, you know, you always hope that they feel that me as their therapist, that I'm capable, that I'm knowledgeable, that I come off that way, professional in our, in our sessions, but also approachable. Um, and it feels collaborative to them because that's really important to me. Absolutely. Sounds like a, a little bit of imposter syndrome, which definitely mm-hmm. isn't uncommon. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and it is, you know, I started off doing this work when I was relatively young as well. It is, it is an interesting dynamic, and you almost feel like you even have more to prove sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hear that. Um, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? For sure, laugh. Um, kind of kind of like I said, you know, I, I, I want that client to feel like we're in the trenches together with whatever's going on. Um, so I think being, being at that level with them where you can do that is really, really important. Because especially with kids, um, teens for sure, but even younger that I work with, I don't want them to feel like their parents are hauling them into their principal to meet every week and they've got a report to me and I'm this kind of authority figure. That's not what I want. That's not a good dynamic. Um, so yeah, being, being authentic, being, being very genuine uh, is really important. And I learned that lesson at the state hospital because mm-hmm. many of the, the people, the patients I worked with there didn't have to meet with me uh, if they didn't want to. Uh, it was voluntary. And so I had to, I had to work to earn their trust, to earn rapport with them. Mm-hmm. And they knew, they knew, if, uh, you know, you weren't really having it or you didn't really care. Oh, yeah. Um, so oh, yeah. Being, being very genuine was, was really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about holding space? How would you define that? Holding space is providing that environment for somebody to say what they need to, to a neutral party, which I kind of touched on earlier, but it, you know, in my past experience, when I was in high school as an athlete, and I didn't have a neutral person to talk to, which I, I wish I had it because it would have been so helpful to me, but having that, that, that space to just talk about how frustrated I was with my coach or with myself or um, anything that was going on would have been so beneficial for just alleviating the pressure that I had on my, on myself. Um, so, you know, being, being able to feel like they can voice what they need to not be judged for it, maybe mm-hmm. not be, be held to doing that. Um, kind of like I talked about earlier with kids that say, I want to quit. I don't want to do this anymore. They're angry. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. They, that's just what they're feeling in that moment, you know? So letting yeah. them process through that is, 
is part of it for sure. Okay, cool. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Um, I don't know about advice. It's kind of tricky because I knew I wanted to, to go into performance counseling, you know, even at the beginning of grad school. And so that's a very niche area and there aren't a whole lot of professors that uh, had that experience necessarily. Um, Of course, there were things I I drew from that I learned from them, but I think most recently I'm actually injured right now in rowing. And so I've been doing physical therapy um, with my, he's actually a sports chiropractor. Um, his name is Jordan Pauline of Well Sport. If anybody <laughs> needs a good physical therapist, um, and he's he's not much older than me, but he's former athlete for UT. Um, so we just kind of mesh really well, and um, he's just he's so fantastic for um, diagnosing pain, which can be a very frustrating process with doctors mm. sometimes. Um, so like. One of the last meetings I had with him, I was kind of talking about a couple of cases I had in general terms with, with him and, um, you know, the types of, of clients that I see. And, and at the end of this, the meeting with him, I was walking out the door and he was just like, he just looked me like square in the face and was like, Hey, you keep up the good work. You're doing good work. And that, because I respect him so much, like that just meant the world to me because maybe not so much in Austin, but I think sometimes in Texas, the role of being a therapist, a talk therapist is still kind of looked down upon. Like it's not, not really that helpful. It's not necessary. It's kind of frou-frou. I don't know. Um, so when you get to hear that from another clinician, especially one you really respect, that means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, don't tell me about that. I, I come, my family is all medical professionals. I'm the black sheep of the family in mental mm-hmm. health. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice so far? I wish I could answer this positively, but um, I feel like one of the things I struggle with personally is um, just because I think the nature of therapy is you're, you're working with people who are struggling. So for me, I recognize that my perception can get skewed about how just we're doing as a society. Um, and I get kind of, I get a little down about it because I guess maybe just the way I'm wired, I see, you know, you see the, the overarching system, the problems with it, how many people are, are not doing well with it. So the kind of forefront example I think of is, is kids in, in our education system that is failing them in all kinds of different ways. And I just, it's hard to, to see the, the consequences of that. And it's like, yes, I know I'm, I'm helping people as I can case by case, but I wish I could do more to change the, the overall system that's not working. So that, that kind of, opens up your eyes and it's something you continuously learn about as you're meeting with people. Absolutely. I feel that on so many levels. Mm -hmm. So what do you do to take care of yourself? 
Um, exercise for sure, just because I still compete and train. That's important for me being outside, mm-hmm. um, especially in COVID times where, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm working out in my garage primarily. And um, so, yeah, getting out and, and getting out of my house is important. Um, art, like I mentioned, that's, that's a continuous practice for me. Uh, because it's it's so important for uh, my work with clients, but also just my own stuff and processing mm-hmm. it. Um, also, diet's really big because I I feel like I'm just one of those people that gets really achy for reasons I've never been able to pinpoint. So, well, I think you know, doing sports. I mean, any any sort of active movement for most of your life will do it you know (laughs) yeah definitely definitely um yeah you know everybody's different and different things are helpful to different people and just the sooner you can recognize what those are and and be disciplined about implementing them is is for the better you have like one thing you have to do a day that like helps keep you in a good place? Um, this is embarrassing to say, but um, I, part of my routine, especially when I've, I've been at the office working and I come home, being able to transition mentally from everything that I've heard that day from clients, not just coming home and sitting alone with that. So transitioning well and my own headspace is important. And so to help this, my, my routine is that when I come home, um, my cat that I mentioned earlier, Mia, whose species confused, she, <laughs> she wants to go for a walk as soon as I get home. So being outside, just kind of chilling with her before I'm in the house, that's that's pretty central to, to my day. I love that. <laughs> I love that, and I love that you take her for walks. I think that is amazing. Yeah, she's uh, she's quite the celebrity in the neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> she's gorgeous, obviously, but she just has so much personality, and you know, just she's right by my side, walking around. Pets are so awesome. They give us so much. You know, they're just so cool. And it's just so it's so fascinating to me. We're two completely different species and we can communicate, you know. Yeah. It's just it blows my mind when I sit and think about it sometimes. Yeah. And I I really want to get my dog Batty. I don't know if you've seen them. They have these buttons now where you can record a message and then the dog learns to push that button. So like Oh can, yeah. So like the T word, which would be a T-R-E-A-T. So, mm-hmm. you know, they learn to push that button and then they, they get, you know, a T word. Um, and I think that's really cool because, I mean, that, that's literally communicating. You know, mm-hmm. that's them literally telling us what they want. It's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I digress again. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you define happiness? That's a great question. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Myers-Briggs personality assessments, um, but I am uh, 
despite my wishes in INTJ, which is kind of me too. You are okay, great. We understand. Um, You know, I kind of came to terms a long time ago with happiness not being what society tells us it should be, um, and kind of redefining that for myself. And so for me, that is the things that kind of gently hold me along through life in general, we'll just say. Mm -hmm. So being engaged with something, uh, being curious, being putting in good participation with something, um, being interested, helping, things like that are what I get fulfillment from and what I get, I don't even like using the word happiness, but what I feel the closest positive emotions from, I would say sense of fulfillment, um, maintaining a sense of being even keel, level-headed, hopeful uh, about the future, things like that. Those those are pretty important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. My, the best definition I have of happiness is fleeting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So the next question, a couple questions are a little vulnerable. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? Oh, gosh. Right after I graduated and I took my board exam, uh, one of the first jobs I applied for, I, I won't even say what organization it was because I'm <laughs> about this. Uh, it was in Austin, though. And somehow, I still don't know how this happened because I'm a very organized person. But I showed up to the interview two weeks early. <laughs> and the worst part is I didn't even know it until a couple weeks later because the guy interviewing me just like went along with it. And I could tell he was kind of confused because he asked me, he was like, well, what position are you interviewing for? And like, I got there and he just didn't seem that prepared. And I was kind of like, well, that's rude. I mean, I made the time to come, <laughs> come down here and go through this interview process and, you know, you kind of left it like, okay, well, we'll, we'll touch base and let you know. And so a couple of weeks go by and I'm just like, I don't feel good about the interview. You know, I, I know something is wrong and I haven't heard from them. And I look at my calendar and it just like clicked, dawned on me that <laughs> I'm majorly screwed up. And so I, I, and this was like four o'clock in the morning when I realized this. So I emailed them. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I had the dates mixed up. Thank you for being gracious about it. Um, and they emailed me back and they're like, yeah, we filled the position. And I was like, understandable. <laughs> Got it. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, next vulnerable question. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? I'm not currently, but um, when I was in graduate school, particularly my last year, when, when I was an intern at the state hospital, I was just to help process everything, especially my first semester there. I had such a hard time reconciling the difference of like being at the hospital in the morning and then rest of the day going about my normal activities, going to school, rowing practice, going and meeting friends for drinks, like normal stuff you and I do. Um, I couldn't reconcile the difference with like just the chaos of the hospital and how difficult it was and how much suffering was there. Um, 
So I really, I struggled with that the first semester and needed, needed extra help. And even, I still don't really know why, but even after I graduated, um, like I, I graduated in the summer after the summer term. And so that was my third semester at the hospital. I had done an insane number of hours there. It was like 900. Um, and I was, I was at my highest level of training throwing. I competed at nationals that summer wow. and, um, and then graduated in August and then just like plummeted where I was just exhausted. I wasn't willing. I just couldn't feel like I could engage with what I needed to do next with like applying for licensure and looking for jobs. Pretty, pretty burned out just all around. Um, and overwhelmed. Um, you know, it's like on paper, it's, it looks like a time in your life where you should be higher than ever, you know, higher, feel a lot of confidence because I accomplished this, I finished my master's, you know, all that jazz, but I was feeling lower than ever and, and really struggling with that. So I was glad I had the extra support. Good. I'm glad you did that. I mean, you know, I think we finish grad school and it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I worked full-time while I went to grad school full-time as well. And I chose the route of writing a master's thesis, which I don't know why I did that. <laughs> so masochistic, um, you know, and, and then, you know, we finish all that and then it's like out in the world. Right. And mm-hmm. it's, it's very difficult if you don't have, you know, if you don't have the financial means to, you know, get into a place to do your hours, to have a supervisor, because, you know, we, we often have to pay our supervisors, um, which, which is difficult when you're, you know, I was going to say intern, but when you're an associate, uh, for example, and when I was uh, what used to be called an intern, you know, I was making $17 an hour. I mean, with a master's degree Mm -hmm. and I couldn't, I couldn't even afford to rent an apartment on my own in Austin, you know, Mm -hmm. because then you have student loans coming in and, you know, all that stuff. It's, I think it's quite, quite the feat to get licensed as a a mental health care professional these days. It's a difficult road. Yeah. Yeah. And, and many people just don't know that they don't know all the hoops you have to jump through. Mm -hmm. Um, to become fully licensed. It's, it's quite the ordeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish people knew more because it's, you know, it's like by the time you get there, you have a lot of time, money, emotions invested in being a, a counselor. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not some job that you just picked up to make extra cash, you know, right, right. You're, you're invested in it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is there anything I didn't ask or anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? I would say um, for potential new clients, it's funny. I get, I get a lot of calls from parents who kind of start off the conversation by saying, well, I don't know if you can help, but my kid plays this sport and this is going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you always kind of chuckle when you hear that because it's clear, like, 
reaching out to me for help is kind of like a last resort. It's a last effort for them. And I wish that wasn't the case. Yeah. And I, you know, I think of how many parents say that. And I think of all the parents who, who never reach out because they don't think it would be helpful or um, have any kind of like shame of having to see a counselor. Cause that's still pervasive uh, kind of attitude people have. So I would, I would hope for new clients that even if they're unsure if I can help them or their kid, uh, reach out, you know, send an email, a text, schedule a phone con- consultation. More than happy to, to just chat and talk about what's going on and, and if I'd be a good fit. Awesome. Awesome. Totally agree. It's still too much of a faux pas, will you? Mm-hmm. Um, well, thanks so much for being on the, the show, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure having you today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I loved it. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for next week's episode featuring Jennifer Dunham, licensed professional counselor, supervisor, and certified hypnotherapist. We'll be discussing her practice in an area of specialty, hypnotherapy. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via the Venmo account at NQCATX. NextQuest podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources, Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www nextquestcounseling.com slash about nextquest podcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off. <laughs>